Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. They haven't established themselves, and so when the wind came and beat upon the house, as Jesus will say elsewhere, what happens? The house begins to crash all around them. But those of you that have firmly established yourself in the Lord in these things, you know what? It's like we were talking before service. I hate this. I hate this situation. There's not a moment in the situation I'm enjoying, you know? And yet at the same time, it doesn't move me. It doesn't change things. What does it change? We continue to do what we've always done. I get up in the morning and I open my Bible and I read my Bible and, and, and I, I spend time in prayer and I spend time preparing myself for the ministry that God has for me, adjusted to the situation, and we keep on moving forward. But we're established. And the reason we're established is because we've made Jesus and his word our priority. And that's what makes us solid. And so every wind of this world, every wind of doctrine will blow you about and you will lack the stability that God wants you to have in your life. Just like Jesus says that John has, you'll have the opposite if you're not grounded in Jesus and in the word of God itself. But it certainly doesn't depict John's life. No matter what questions he had, John was not a reed shaken by the wind. Second thing he says, a rhetorical question was, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? You know, with that question, Jesus is simply asking, do you think that John is a man of dainty spiritual character? Is that what you think John is? Do you perceive him to be a spiritual dishrag, a spiritual wimp, you know, a spiritual pansy, a man who stands with God only when it's easy or convenient or when it befits him personally, when there's something to be gained from it for himself and to his own life personally? Is that what you think? Well, clearly the answer to that question is a resounding no, right? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is no. First of all, John was a rugged dude, right? I mean, he gave up the comforts of this world and lived a selfless life for the Lord, an austere life for the Lord. He was willing to endure discomfort and inconvenience because he didn't care about himself. He only cared about who? The Lord. He wanted to do the Lord's will. I mean, folks, I mean, think about this. This is the guy who lived like a hermit out in the middle of the wilderness and walked around in camel skins and he ate bugs, right, for his meals. This is not a man of dainty character. And, 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 you know, second, when you think about it, this was a man who was not afraid of what could happen to him for speaking truth. He was not afraid of what would happen to him for speaking the truth. He told Herod that what he was doing with his brother Philip's wife was completely immoral and completely wrong, and and he did that knowing full well where that could lead, right? Which it did. Which it did. It led to his imprisonment and then eventually to his beheading. So this is clearly not a man who was in any way choosing comfort over willing self-sacrifice. Now, again, I hope you realize that this should characterize our lives in Christ, that we would live lives that reflect self-sacrifice for Jesus over the comforts that this life in this world offer to give us, right? 
sometimes the comforts that this world offers to give us sort of smacks of, you know, Satan tempting Jesus, right? Fall down and worship me and you can have all of this. I had a pastor friend, I don't know if I've shared, I probably have, but I'll share it with you again. I had a pastor friend who was, you know, seeking what he said very honestly that he was seeking everything that the world had to offer to him. And his dad was a pastor, but as he was seeking these things, he says one day he was interviewing for a job in New York City and he was in the office of the chief corporate exec. And uh, he, the corporate exec wanted him to sign on the dotted line and he walked up behind him and put his arm around him, took him over to the window and he said, sign here and all of this will be for you to take, pointing to the world out there. And he said, in that moment, I knew, he said, I just wanted to run back to Jesus. I wanted to run back. Sometimes the world smacks of that, doesn't it? Even in simple ways to Christians, you know, just take this. It's all good. You can have this comfort. And, and, And certainly, look, I'm not talking about selling off everything you have. And I'm not talking about moving off the grid someplace, you know, and putting up solar panels and living out. I mean, solar panels are fine, but you know what I'm talking about, living out in the middle of the wilderness someplace and doing that, you know, skinning the cat to make your garments and 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 collecting you know stink bugs to dip in barbecue sauce to eat for dinner so that you can match john's kind of austerity i'm not talking about that but i am talking about an attitude of heart that will emerge in actions when when it's appropriate when it's required it's an attitude of heart that says i'm not afraid to go to the mat for jesus i'm not afraid to do that i'm not afraid to go to the mat for the gospel now make sure the mat you're going to is for the gospel and not for all kinds of worldly kinds of things that are being mixed into the gospel. I'm not talking about mixing your politics with the gospel or mixing your personal views with the gospel. I'm talking about going to the mat for what the scriptures themselves say. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that the risk that that can bring to you personally? It's an attitude of heart that says, I'm not afraid to let go of my life as I know it, not afraid to let go of the things that mean so much to me in this world, but which will one day fade away anyways. But there is nothing that any of us possess that is going with us one day, right? Whether it be the rapture or through death, there, all this stuff's going to be left behind. I used to like that guy in that one ministry. He always would end it and say, you know, you just need to let go of everything in your life because in the end, the Antichrist is going to get it anyways. You know, and that's true to that, right? I mean, if we're in the end times and we go, he's going to get your house. He's going to get your stuff. Somebody else is going to get it. You know, are we willing? It's not wrong to have things, but are you willing to keep a light touch on those things so that if the Lord says, no, just let that go, that you could do that. And wouldn't, you know, be like those who made the excuses, you know, well, I just need this for now because he'd say, well, then it's not worthy of being my disciple. You see, I want to be worthy of being his disciple, which means I keep a light touch on things that aren't going to matter in the long run anyways. It's, it's an attitude of heart that says, though I might possess many things, have many comforts in this life, there is nothing am I willing to let go of for the sake of Jesus and his call in my life. Jesus is not going to call you guys, the vast majority of you, to get up and move to the middle of nowhere, you know, and to begin to preach the gospel to the lost aborigines on the island of Pupu Mama or wherever, you know. Is there an island like that, Pupu Mama? That sounds pretty bad. But, <laughs> but, but, you know what? Are you willing to let go of the things to go down the street and do what he's asking you to do? You know, that, that's, that's the heart. It, it should be the same heart as a missionary. It should be the exact same heart. He may never call you to go to the faraway places the missionary goes, and yet you're no different than that missionary. That heart should be exactly the same. 
It's an attitude of heart that says, I'm keeping a light grip on the things of this life. So if Jesus asked me to let go of those things for his sake, I'll do it without hesitation because I am not hanging on tightly to those things. There is nothing I have in this life that is worth hanging on to more than Jesus himself. Folks, it is a sad but true reality that there are a few, you know, uh, more than a few, I guess I should say, uh, Christians who hold, you know, the opposite attitudes of this. There, there's very few, I think, that hold this attitude. I even challenge myself because I find too often, though I can preach a good message on it, the Lord will inevitably, and I guarantee you before the week's out, he's going to challenge me on something about it where I just realize, well, I'm not so sure I want to let that go. You know, but, but, but this is the attitude we want. And, and there are too many of us that, that talk about Jesus, but we won't follow through with it when he asks us to do the things that don't fit our lifestyle or don't fit our agenda or when it interferes with our personal comfort. There are way too many who, unlike John, are clothed in soft garments. Clothed in soft garments. Far too many are gorgeously apparelled and living in luxury in king's courts in a lot of ways. These are people who Christianity and their Christian service is constrained and determined really by their own pleasures and their own comforts. We have an entire segment of Christianity that caters to that kind of nonsense. You know, the, this idea to have is somehow blessed and spiritual, and then everything spiritual gets built around the having. And yet we look at Jesus, and what does he say? You know, what are you clinging to? Why, why would you do that? We so desperately need a different kind of believer today. We really do now. We need a different kind of believer today. We need men and women of God who, like John, are willing to step up and be strong in their commitment to the Lord, becoming men and women of rugged spiritual character and commitment. We need Christians who are willing to break free of the whining, break free of the complaining, break free of the excuse-making, those who are willing to, to, to back up their words of commitment with rugged, determined action like John was. We need those who are willing to break free of the, the dainty way of thinking and living that so characterizes, in particular, American Christianity. I do have a bully pulpit. I always say I don't have one. I more and more have a bully pulpit, and it's American Christianity. I just think we are an aberration of what, what Christianity really is, and I think sometimes we're a slap into the face to those that are in other countries you know, where, where they don't have what we have. And that's not to say we have to give up so we can be like them, but our hard attitude should be that we don't need all these things that we're gripping our hands on so tightly and making our Christianity about when they're living such a simple Christian life that's pure and right, you know. We need those who will be brave. We know those who will be strong in the Lord today more than ever. And, and, and I promise you this, if you're willing to live that kind of life, he'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. He'll give you the strength and the ability to live it. You know, it isn't something you'll have to muster up in yourself. You'll just have to choose, you know, what you're going to give yourself over to. And as you make that choice, he'll meet you right there with that. Folks, when all this is said and done about our lives, I pray that you and I will be counted among those like John and like those described in the book of Hebrews. You know what the book of Hebrews describes in that hall of faith, right? The hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, verse 32, it begins through verse 34. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? 
For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Don't you want to be counted amongst those guys and gals? That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be, though. None of us will, will perfectly live that kind of rugged, committed life. We should still all strive to, to be heroes of the faith like these people are noted in Scripture to be. And we can be like them. It is possible for us to be like them because the same Spirit of God that empowered them dwells in residence in you and me. <laughs> it was given in measure to them, but in us we have the fullness of the Spirit continually present and working in us. In fact, as we'll shortly see, Jesus even says that we can be greater than John the Baptist, and we'll come back to that. But before we look at that, look what else he says here. He raises one more question to highlight one more characteristic that describes John. He says in verse 26, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Jesus highlights the fact that John is a prophet of God as, as, as many perceive him to be, and yet Jesus says that he's even more than that. Yeah, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. You see, after 400 years of God's silence, there's 400 years has passed. The silent years, we say, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Those aren't the years, but it is the gap that exists in there. For 400 years was a time when God did not raise up a single prophet to speak to the nation of Israel. Now, lots of things were happening, and yet not one single prophet that he raised up in that time. No voice, God not breaking onto the scene in any visible way in the same way. But after 400 years, suddenly, here's John. Here's John, and he has appeared not just as a regular Old Testament prophet, which, with, which what the people were familiar with, but, but he appears as the final prophet of the Old Covenant era, who is also bridging the gap to the New Covenant era, which Jesus is establishing. And this in and of itself is, is a unique calling, right? This makes his calling unique because there has never been, nor will there ever be, a prophet of God like this again, and one who has particularly been, been called to be the forerunner of the Messiah, you see. He has come in the spirit of Elijah, and, and that's what's being referred to when Jesus says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's referring to Elijah in that statement. And yet Jesus points out that his ministry is even greater than Elijah's ministry ever was because he was given the privilege of being the forerunner of Jesus, declaring his coming to all mankind. So, so we would look at that and say, so what is that characteristic of John have to do with us. Obviously, we're not going to get to do that in the same way. Well, simple. With all of the old covenant prophets leading up to and including John, the spirit who is at the heart of that prophetic ministry that's taken place over those thousands and thousands of years was given, as I said earlier, to all of those people in measure, right? But, but since John came, the spirit has taken up resident not in just some of God's people, but in all of God's people. It's not just that God would raise up a single man to be a prophet or a woman to be a prophetess, right? But he's put his spirit in all of us. 
to be his vessels through whom he speaks to this world in all of God's people and, and not in a limited measure, but in a full and continual measure in our lives. That same spirit who dwelled powerfully in John and propelled him in his prophetic ministry now dwells in each and every one of you and me. Think about that for a minute. The spirit that was in John is now living in you. That's powerful stuff when you think about that. And all the time, (laughs) he doesn't take a break. He doesn't go on vacation. He doesn't get pulled back. Even when you grieve him, he doesn't get removed. You know, David didn't have that reassurance, right? Because in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, what does David pray? He says, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You know, we used to sing that song. It's an old Maranatha song. And we used to sing that in the early days of Christianity here in the 70s and the, and the 80s. That was a popular song, but it's an unbiblically, it's a biblically incorrect song. Because under the new covenant, that spirit is never taken away from us as believers. Never. We can grieve the spirit. We can quench the spirit but the Spirit will not be removed from us. He's our guarantee. He's our seal of our salvation, and he's the empowerment that comes. And quite frankly, I'm so grateful that even when I fail the Lord in sin, that the Spirit isn't taken from me because it is the Spirit who then helps me to stand back up and to overcome the sin and to begin to walk again. That's what we have dwelling in us. And when you think about this, like John, we've been given a unique calling to fulfill because our prophetic ministry involves being the forerunners of the second coming of Jesus, right? All of us. We get to go into all the world and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, good news which prophetically deals with what? His return, the culminating in his return and the establishment of his kingdom one day. And like John, we get the privileged ministry of calling men and women to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ so that they can be a part of what Jesus will be bringing to the earth when he comes. The fulfillment of this calling is something that should characterize our lives on this earth. It's what we should be about. It doesn't mean I got to run up and tell everybody I see on the street about Jesus, but it means I am a open vessel to be used by the Lord when he brings me to that right person in that right moment to be able to speak that word to them with boldness, as John would have done, and and directly and to know God's word to be able to share that with them, you see. As Paul declares, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we have a different term. You know, John was a prophet of God. Ours is a different term. Paul says in first or second Corinthians chapter five and verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. We're, we've gotten the spirit to be ambassadors for him as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And John three, three tells us we get to prophetically to declare truth to people. Right, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know what? When you speak that to people, you're speaking prophetically from the word. You're looking into people's lives and you're, you're, you're speaking to them. You're not foretelling, but you're foretelling the word of God to them and what is involved in becoming a believer. If, if, you, if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
and, and the truths of the future things described in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and to tell people as Jesus told them, just as he said in Luke 21 and verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. There isn't a day right now that shouldn't go by that we shouldn't be saying that to people. We don't have to point to every event and say, well, that event and this is how it's going to work out. But we can just look at people and say, pick up your newspaper. Let's look at the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Look at what it says when, when he was asked the questions, what will be the signs of your coming and your return? How will we know that the time is drawing near? And you can take somebody through that in a 10-minute Bible study and say, now go read your paper and tell me what you think. When you see these things happening, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. This is our calling as ambassadors, to lead them to Christ, to prophetically declare the truths that the scriptures have given us prophetically of his return. This is our ministry. And may this be the focus of our lives while we're here on this earth. Amen? So that's John, but look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 28. He says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Interesting. Here Jesus tells them and us that as great as John the Baptist is, was, there are those who will become greater than he ever was in his life and in his ministry. Those, he says, in particular, who are the least in the kingdom of God. You know, like many who heard Jesus say this to them, those who held John in high regard, and, and there were people in this crowd. Remember, a lot of the people that Jesus is now talking to were drawn to John initially. These are probably people who came out when he was baptizing, may have even been baptized by him, not all of them. We're going to find that in this crowd are also the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the legalists of Israel, and they certainly didn't. They rejected that baptism. But at the same time, here's Jesus talking to this crowd, and, and I guarantee you there were, a, there were a number of people in this crowd who saw John in high regard. I mean, he was just a, an incredible figure to them. And, 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 and when they'd hear this, they probably wonder, well, how could that possibly be? How could somebody lesser than John be greater than John? And people today would say that as well. How could, how could I be greater or someone greater than John? Now, even though John was a tremendous servant of God, he was not, remember this, he was not born again under the new covenant. Keep that in mind. John was not born again under the new covenant. He, did, he, he lived and he died before Jesus completed his work on the cross. The new covenant was not established until his blood was shed, right? It is the new covenant in my blood. We say that every time we take communion together, right? John was gone by the time Jesus went to the cross. And most certainly he was gone before Jesus was resurrected, which confirmed the covenant, which means that despite his greatness as a servant of the Lord, he never experienced or enjoyed the full benefits of the new covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that John will not enjoy salvation. He will, you know, because he lived by faith in God alone, and righteousness will be accounted to him just as it was to Abraham and to all the other Old Testament saints who live by forward-looking in faith to God for their righteousness and not to their own righteousness. You know, Paul makes clear that righteousness was credited to the account of those who look by faith to the Lord for their righteousness, Abraham. Paul says in Romans 4, 3, in regard to Abraham, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That word accounted is an accounting term. It means it was credited. It was written in the book to his account. 
And it's through righteousness that we're able to see God. That's why the law could never do it for us, because we can never be righteous under the law by the keeping of the law, because we can't keep it perfectly enough to make ourselves righteousness to stand in the presence of God. We need a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves. And so the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, they didn't know Messiah, but they trusted that God had a planned Messiah, a Savior, and they knew that ultimately that their righteousness could only come from God, and they looked forward to what God would do for them and through that, they will know, they do know the Lord. They are saved. The same with David. Uh, In Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Paul goes on talking about David. He says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Isn't it nice to know? that sin is not imputed to us when we put our faith in Jesus? The Old Testament saints could know that too. And this is the very premise of all that has been realized in the new covenant for us, that salvation isn't something that we earn, but something which God imparts to us as we look to him by faith alone. But the point is that as great as a man as John was, as great a prophet as John was, as great a servant as John was, he did not get to enjoy the fullness of this covenant that Jesus established after his life ended. But we do. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.